Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Would you open our hearts uh, and our understanding that we may live it uh, out faithfully for you, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. It's a, it's a strange passage, isn't it? Uh, for, a, for a Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, it's about giving, um, but maybe not giving well, and then you die. <laughs> Just keel over. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, and it's a passage that can, it can make, it can kind of sound like God's being really harsh, and kind of just obligatorily, like striking someone down in a in a weird way. So let's let's take a look at what's going on here. I think I think the best way to understand what's happening with Ananias and Sapphira is to remember the first remember the larger context, right? And what we actually have here are two linked but contrasting stories, two sort of examples, and. Between those two examples, you have, and we didn't read it this morning, but you have, if you just look up at verse 30 and 31 of chapter 4, it's describing the work of the Spirit in the community of God, in the fellowship of believers. You've got prayer happening. You've got uh, just a reaffirmation. We talked about this last week, a reaffirmation of the Spirit with the early church. And then in verse 12 of chapter 5, right after the Ananias and Sapphira episode, we read another sort of bookend that talks about the life of the Spirit in the church. Verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And so you've got sort of spirit at the front end, the spirit in the life of the church, uh, and his power at work in the church, and the unity that the Spirit brings, uh, the fellowship among the believers that the Spirit um, fosters within the local church. At the front end and at the back end, okay? And then between those two bookends, you have two stories, one of someone who faithfully gives, Barnabas, and one of someone who does not faithfully give, which is Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas it's like he represents sort of the gener- generous and kind of virtuous believer. He's an encourager. And then Luke lays out a second story in contrast to Barnabas, who we know is, a, as, is kind of faithfully living for God. Uh, kind of, he's introduced here, but he shows up later on in the story. In contrast to Barnabas, You have Ananias and Sapphira, and we're told they're actually deceiving the church and actually attempting to lie to God. And what what does Peter actually say in verse 3 of chapter 5? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? So in contrast to the Spirit being poured out, The filling of the Spirit at the two bookends, at the front and at the end of the section, here Peter is calling out that there is another force that's seeking to be at work in undermining the unity of the church. And and it's the work that is uh, of Satan at work in Ananias. And so you have Ananias, who is almost like a comparative foil to Barnabas. And in Barnabas, you can see 
the Spirit at work in the community, bringing life. And in Ananias, we see this lesser power, lesser than the Spirit, that's seeking to undo the church's unity. Now, so far in Acts, the threats, the conflicts that have come upon the church are from outside of the church, right? It's been other kind of authorities, uh, the Sadducees, the temple guard, those sorts of things. They've come from outside, and this is the first time we get a hint of the conflict or the disunity in the church, the threat from within. So let's take a look at at how the passage starts. Again, just this description of the life of the church, verses 32 to 37. And Luke Luke pauses to, again, give sort of a summary. He wants to elaborate on the, the generosity and the love and the care of the church. There's great power among the apostles. They're giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There's great grace upon them all. Uh, So it sounds really good, but it's not all pretty, as we're going to see with the Ananias and Sapphira episode. But overall, things are going well. And the disciples have a willingness to distribute what they have, right? And it's further emphasized that Barnabas is sort of the exemplar of living this out. And so we've got people who have something extra that they are then selling, bringing the money, and they're distributing to the poor. And that is especially interesting when you think of the background, because Jerusalem was a city of extremes. You had an extremely kind of wealthy group. Again, we talked about this with the Sadducees. Um, You had those that were very well off, extravagantly wealthy, and then you had sort of the extravagantly impoverished. Jerusalem is just not a great location for commerce. It's, It's got a high cost of living. You had to bring things in to make it work. Um, and unemployment was high, and so many of the day workers just existed sort of hand-to-mouth, like they would get their wages for the day and spend it on food for the day, and that was just sort of how they lived. There were charities in the city. The temple gave out bread every day, um, but things were overall really difficult for people. And so what the church is doing here is responding to a real need in their community. It, right? It's not. It's not... It's, it's not a, a sort of early experiment in socialism because they're not being forced to give their, their property or their, their goods away, right, by a government. But they actually are caring for the poor and those in the community that are without. We'll find in chapter 6 they're trying to care for the widows in the church well, right? And they need to do some delegating to try and get that ministry to function. And so they're responding to a real need in their community. And that's worth just pausing for a second and as Christians going, well, what are the real needs in my community, right? What are the real needs here in Dryden? And how do I come alongside and how do we as a church come alongside uh, the good projects and the good charities that are at work in our community to help bolster those efforts, right? And that's why we, we do partner with the food bank or we partner with Team Challenge and whatnot to help to meet those needs So in the middle of this great example of the church trying to help those that are in real, real dire straits, Barnabas shows up as an example of this. He's a representative, right, of of those Christians that want to live generously and encourage those and care for those in need, sort of the marks of an authentic Christian. And again, it's worth just pausing and remembering that how we, 
How we handle our wallets is often a picture of what's going on in our hearts. When we are fearful, when we're worried about the future, we tend to hang on to stuff more. We want to control it more. We're afraid that things may not turn out. But often, if we are able to trust in God and we're motivated by love, we tend to give. We tend to realize, I can let go of this thing and trust that God will look after me, knowing that God will uh, carry me through. And so what you have here in some ways is not just Barnabas uh, in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, but a person who's, who's willing to let go of, of a fear of scarcity and be generous versus a person and, and trust in God versus a person who's not willing to trust in God and seeks to hold on in a way that's actually manipulative. And we'll get to, again to the issue of why, uh, of what the issue is with Ananias and Sapphira in a minute. I just think it's interesting, again, to pause and just look at these two characters and go, uh, God, which way do I lean? Like in my own life, am I more worried about, about scarcity in my life? That I don't actually trust you or I'm willing to listen to the lies of the enemy that would say I need to look after myself instead of trusting in God, right? Versus being willing to be generous and care for those in need and know that God's got me, even if that puts me in a place of potential financial strain. So in contrast to Barnabas, we get Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5. I do wish the chapter, again, the chapters are added later, right? I kind of wish the chapter split didn't happen right there because it breaks the story up in a way that they're meant to go together. Anyway. Nicholas's quibble with whoever put chapters in a couple centuries ago, right? In contrast to Barnabas, we get uh, Ananias and Sapphira, who we know are listening to Satan. And you might, like, what exactly goes wrong here, right? They sell some land, but they don't give all the proceeds to the church. They keep some for themselves. So, like, what's the big deal? <laughs> they weren't obligated to sell the land, so why can't they keep some of it? And we start to see a little more of what's going on here when you look at the exchange between them and Peter. In chapter 5, verse 2, it says this, even before they get to Peter, it says, And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And that sounds not unreasonable. I mean, I don't give my full paycheck back to the church. I keep some of it to live on, right? If I sold a thing, I might tithe some of that money, but I don't necessarily give it all to the church. So what... What's the big deal? Well, if you look, this idea of keeping back in verse 2, if you look at the Greek, the Greek is nephizo, and it means, it doesn't mean just to hold on to it because um, it's yours in a perfectly honest way. It means to, it means to set aside for yourself in a secret or dishonest way. It means to kind of cling to it in a way that goes against what you intended. It's an it's a uncommon word. One of the only other places in the Greek Old Testament is in the story of Achan, where it's used, in Joshua 7. And in that passage, um, the children of Israel 
uh, Jericho Falls, and they, they go in, and the spoils are supposed to be devoted to God, and Achan holds back some of the spoils for himself. He keeps it in a way that's not, not helpful. Another spot where it's used is in Titus, uh, in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 10, where that word is translated actually as steal, where you're stealing something. And in other ancient texts, it's, it's a word that's, that's used to describe like the misappropriation of funds, kind of like you're skimming off the top. And so, though the circumstances are really different from Achan and Joshua, Luke is using the same sort of word to describe Ananias' deceit. That, that just as Achan took or stole some of what was not his and kept it for himself, Ananias is keeping some of what is no longer his back for himself. And later on, it's clear that they're lying about the situation. They're bringing only a portion of the sale, even though they're, they're saying, it seems implied that they would have said that this was all of it. And that's why Peter asked Sapphira, is this all of it? And she's complicit in the lie, right? And so it's not the fact that they're only bringing a portion that's the issue. It's the fact that they're being manipulative and dishonest. They're saying they're giving their all when actually they're not. And again, it was not compulsory for them to sell any of this. They don't have to sell the land. They don't have to sell the property and give it to the common fund. That was not a requirement. The issue is that they lie about what they did, and that brings up a larger issue of them actually lying to God about it. And so you can see underneath this, it's not just sort of a clash between uh, Ananias versus Peter. Underneath that is the power of Satan at work in a community to breed dishonesty and manipulation and self-seeking versus what the Spirit would seek to foster, which is unity and hope and fellowship. You see how there's kind of, there's an insidious power underneath what's going on in the surface. I like what, uh, this is from Dean Pinter. He said this about this passage. He says, Satan, the great tempter and adversity, adversary, who tested Jesus in the wilderness and who entered Judas in order to pervert the plans of God is now at work within the early church. Ananias, with his heart filled with Satan, has lied to God and conspired to test the Spirit of God. And so what's at threat here is the unity of the church, the unity that was described in our two bookends, the beginning and at the end of this this passage. What does Satan say to them? Verse 3, he says, Satan has filled your heart. Satan is the instigator behind this deed of stealing what's holy, of using it to fulfill a a dishonest or self-seeking agenda. It's almost like this false echo of of the Holy Spirit filling the church from Acts 2, right? Satan has filled you, filled your heart with this idea. And twice Ananias is charged with keeping part of the income of the land, which indicated that uh, he must have claimed that he was dedicating the whole of it to God's work. And that's why his sin is a lie. It's a lie of uh, stealing what's no longer his. And Peter's response, he makes it clear, again, the whole project is voluntary. 
right? He says in verse 4, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you've contrived this deed in your heart? It's almost like Ananias is, is trying to make himself look better than he is, right? It's like he's saying, look, at we, we also have sold a great chunk of thing, whatever it is. And look how much money we're giving to the church. How brilliant of us. We are wonderful. Um, but actually, we're keeping the majority for ourselves. But we're pretending like this is all of it, right? In contrast to Barnabas, who's just like, here, here's the proceeds from that field I had that I wasn't using. Go for it. Let's feed the people, right? And so Peter, again, emphasizes it's all voluntary but in doing this, you're lying to the Spirit. You're lying to God. And when Ananias hears this in verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last. He just keels over, and he's done. And then about three hours later, in verse 8, Sapphira shows up like, where's my husband? Right? He's been gone for three hours. Where's that guy? He's supposed to come back. Peter asks her about it, and she perpetuates the lie. And Peter says, says how... How have you agreed together to test the Lord in this, right? Verse 9. How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Like, why would the two of you even, why would you do this? This makes no sense, right? And then she falls over and expires. And then it says this fear comes. And I think it's important, again, to understand what that fear is. We were talking this morning about how God does not give us a spirit of fear as in sort of a terror of worldly events or what's happening in our lives. But what we get here is a fear like the Old Testament describes, a sort of fear of the Lord, which is a a healthy sense of awe before God, a recognition that he is holy and he is God and he is not for me to manipulate or to control for my whims. He is God alone. And so they have this reverent awe, almost a healthy fear of God's displeasure or discipline in a very small sense. I was reminded of when I was a kid, and mom would say, I'm going to tell dad about this when he gets home. And there is a healthy fear of dad, right? I know dad loves me. It's not that, but there is a healthy fear of what will happen in that moment. I think this is a moment where the church sort of just breathes in and goes, oh, yeah. God is not someone we just toy with. He is holy and he is good. It is a strange story. We're not given a lot of information. We don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were false believers who were just kicking around the church and tried to do this because they felt like it. and, And it's like, nope not happening. We don't know. Maybe they did truly belong to the Lord, and yet they've committed a sin. We don't really know. But in any case, what we do see here is God is at work in keeping this early Christian community by removing the threats of disunity and distrust, right? The unity that's emphasized in our two bookends with the presence of the Spirit coming and filling and at work in their lives Here's an example from inside of how that unity gets threatened by Satan from within, not from without, and God shuts it down. We're not going to deal with it, right? God takes seriously the threats to the unity of the church. And so for us today, on a brilliant Thanksgiving Sunday, right, I think it's easy 
to just, again, dismiss the story as strange and the judgment is really harsh. But I just want to remind us of a few things very quickly that I think we can learn from this. The first, again, is that the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit comforts and teaches and unifies believers together in Christ, and it's the infilling of the Spirit that enables us to live for Jesus, to image forth, as image bearers of God, to image forth the the character of Jesus in the world, right, as our witness to love others, to love God and love our neighbor. And there's just a stark reminder here as people filled with the Spirit of God, that we are to resist the devil. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And we're also called to be very aware of our own selfish desires. The, old, the things in our hearts that we would seek to, to, to place a greater, you know, as a greater authority in our lives than Jesus, that we would seek to uh, our own agenda rather than what God would have for us to go the way of, of manipulation or self-seeking. That's what Ananias and Sapphira do. The second, So that's the first thing. We are to be filled with the Spirit of God to live out the character of Jesus in the world, and we need to resist those that would prompt us to live in a way that is not incongruent uh, with the character of Jesus in the world. We need to resist the enemy. I think the second thing here, again, which is not something we talk about often, but it's, it's obviously very much a part of Scripture, is God is holy, and we do not control him. There's a danger in mishandling the holy. Ananias did not have to sell his property or donate the proceeds, but he did, and when he did it, it became set apart for God, and yet he sought to use what was set apart for God for his own gain. He had sold it with the intention that this was all for God, and yet he then seeks to hold some back. And we need to be reminded we do not manage or handle or control God or what has been set apart for God for our own personal gain. And that's true also when you consider that people are made in the image of God. And so it's a violation of the image in another if I seek to use another person for my own agenda or my own self-seeking. That person is loved by God and redeemed through Jesus. And so I need to not mishandle that person. They're not a project. They're a person. We don't control God. The third thing is, again, to remember, we worship a living God. This is the God who was entered into history. He's not just an idea. He's not just a proposition. We're not talking about simply the pursuit of enlightenment, right? We worship a living being, a personal and relational God, Jesus Christ. We worship a God who loves us, and yet a God who also takes seriously our relationship with him and take seriously our sin. And therefore, there's a call for us to express our own humility before him. Knowing he loves us, that Jesus died for us, but also recognizing he is holy. And my sin 
keeps me from relationship with God. And that's why it's so important that we confess our sins, that we repent and believe uh, and come to him. I'm reminded that God is, uh, is not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis often says about the unpredictability of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not a tame lion. And in this sense, we don't worship and follow a tame God whose ways can just be predicted or controlled by us. There is a, 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 a healthy place for a holy awe and fear of God. He's not a tame lion, but he is a good He's not tame, but he is good. And I think the, perhaps the last thing that I would just mention from this passage is to remember again that there is an enemy who seeks to undo the unity of the church. And so we're not naive about that. We also don't imagine that Satan is behind, you know, the fact that I didn't get a good parking spot or my creamer spilled or, you know, accidentally poured iced coffee in my kid's cereal bowl instead of milk, right? Like, like this, he's not responsible for the goofy things in my life. But he seeks to, to do something in our hearts and in our attitudes, which, which lead us away from following Jesus. And just as an example, uh, a few weeks ago, we were we're talking at our mid our midweek Bible study, um, and brought up this passage from the Screw Tape Letters. This is C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a book written um, from the perspective of an older demon who's coaching a younger demon on how to pull a Christian away from uh, from their faith. And so through it, Lewis has a lot of wisdom for people facing temptations, right? Because he's kind of getting behind that. And one of the things that, that Lewis emphasizes is the dangers of our apathy, the dangers of our complacency in the Christian life. And I think that's when, when we say we need to be aware of the enemy at work in our lives. Sometimes we go, okay, I'm really aware of when, like, the big dramatic evil thing comes my way. But Lewis makes an emphasis, and this is also true, I think, for many of our lives, is that Satan often works in a kind of crafty, insidious, sort of under-the-radar kind of way. And in the Screwtape letters, Uncle Screwtape admonishes his nephew, Wormwood, the young demon, to make their patient, who was a Christian, apathetic to his newfound faith. If the patient becomes apathetic and doesn't care anymore about his faith or about God, he will be on the way towards hell. And according to Screwtape, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, not the dramatic one, the gradual one. And so the key to such a road is to make the Christian feel a dim uneasiness that's not too strong, but just sort of present in his thoughts, an uneasiness. And Screwtape warns, if you make that feeling too strong, the patient will realize that he's under attack and will probably do something about it. He'll, he'll be aware that he's getting separated from God. So you just sort of very 
We carefully make him uneasy in his faith. Just generally gradually separate him from God. Try to encourage him to neglect his duties, to stop going to church, to stop reading reading his Bible to stop praying, just sort of just sort of gradually put, put that at work, right? And eventually he'll become distracted and, and numb to God, he says. And over time, you will even be able to use less interesting things or nothing at all uh, to distract him from spending time with God. And Lewis's point here is so good because he's emphasizing, again, the dangers of apathy. Just a stark reminder that we don't want to be naive about spiritual warfare or the, the temptations that come our way. Um, we need to be very aware that this is often how the enemy works works. I think in Ananias and Sapphira's life, we don't know this for sure, but it doesn't seem like they had, you know, they were communing with the devil in some really grim and weird way, right? It was just sort of the subtle idea that slips in and they start to think, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. I can lie to God about that. That's not a big deal. And soon enough, we find them down this path, right? And I think like many of us, we can be tempted towards our own self-interests, our own desire to manipulate things or people for our own end. Having said all that about the enemy, I think I want to end on this note, and this is probably the most important reminder, is that as much as Satan may try to thwart God's plans, the Holy Spirit is no match for Satan. And so what meager attempts Satan uses to try to destroy the church or or cause disunity in the church, the Holy Spirit brings that to light and deals with the issue really dramatically and really quite quickly. So for us, on a Thanksgiving Sunday... Let's be reminded that God wants to fill us afresh with his Holy Spirit. He wants to fill us so we can live faithfully for him in this time, in the world and in the place where he's called us to, at your workplace, in your school, as you care for loved ones, whatever it might be, he calls us to live faithfully for him. And that as we do that, the enemy doesn't like it. And we will need to remember to resist the devil. And as we do that, the word says he will flee from us. We must try as best as we can to uphold the unity of the church. And that is a real challenge, I think, for us when there's such a range of opinions and ideas, perhaps regarding COVID or vaccinations or whatever it might be. But we're called to live out God's character of love and forgiveness and patience I think, again, of the two examples here for us. One is Ananias, but the other is Barnabas. We're called to be generous. And I think on this Thanksgiving Sunday, that's a great call for us to remember to be generous with all that God has blessed us with. And while we don't fear 
the world. We don't fear tomorrow. We have a healthy fear and a love for the God who cares for us. God who is holy. We don't control him. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. He is good, and he's faithful. And as we sang this morning, his promises are yes and amen. So let's pray together to that end. Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your word. We ask, Father, that as we would consider the example before us, you would help us to choose uh, the way of Barnabas, Lord, to be an encourager, to give of what we can uh, for your work and for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to resist uh, the wiles of the enemy that would just seek to distract us from you, that would, that would cause us to want to give in to our own self-interest, our own motivations, our own often, often faulty desires. Lord, we want to live for you. And we thank you, Jesus, that even though the enemy is at work, just a reminder here in this passage, God, that you, you are at work in keeping us. Holy Spirit, you are at work in growing us as a church. And we just pray this morning, as we head into this week, perhaps as we're celebrating with family, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe we already have done that this weekend. But Lord, as we would engage with others, we want to live faithfully for you. Lord, that we would have hearts that are generous and caring and kind. Lord, we pray for your strength and your wisdom as we seek to walk with you. We pray that you would help us to resist the temptations of the enemy. We thank you for the promise, Lord, that as we do so, he does flee. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from sin. That you would help us to resist those temptations, Lord. And we thank you, Jesus, that even when we fail, when we stumble, when we fall, when we, when we sin, and Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us. May we be quick, Lord, to come to you. Lord, we thank you that you're good, and we pray that you would replace whatever fears or worries or anxieties about the future we may have. Lord, would you replace that with just a healthy sense of love and awe for who you are and what you're doing. Lord, it's so easy to just get lost in in the news and all that's going on in our world. But Jesus, you are faithful. You are true. You're the one on the throne. So, Father, to we just look to you. We pray, Lord, again, that you would be first and foremost in our hearts and in our lives, that you'd bless those ones that are here today and others that are watching online or maybe later on picking up the service. Lord, would you continue to pour out your spirit upon us? We pray for those in... Uh, in positions of authority today, Lord, those in our provincial and federal government, would you bless them and their families? Lord, would you be at work in their lives, drawing them to you, Father, we pray. 
Lord, for our own city and the issues here close to home. We pray for uh, the outpouring of your spirit, Lord, in people's lives. And you would draw many to you. We lift up, Lord, the other churches in Dryden where your name is, is lifted high this morning, Lord. We think of the food bank and Teen Challenge and other ministries, Father, that reach out to those in need. And we pray your provision and your blessing upon them. We thank you for those that lead in those ministries. Father, would you keep each one? And show us the way in which we are to go. We ask in your name. Amen.